Matthew 2, verse 1. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of all the people together, he inquired of them there the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. And when they had heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose... He took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the, by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because there are no more. Let's pray. Father God, you give to all, life, breath, and all things. Lord, you've demonstrated your relentless love for your fallen creatures by humbly entering into humanity as king, yet to serve us, to live the life that none of us could live and die the death that we should have all died and rose conquering sin, Satan, and death, to redeem us, to restore us to yourself, And Lord God, that's why we gather here today, and we thank you and praise you for how wonderful you are, and how you are faithful to fulfill all of your promises, that you are sovereign enough to fulfill all of your decrees, and that you're true to your word. And God, I thank you so much with the opportunity of being able to present your truth here today, and I'd ask that your Holy Spirit would enable me 
to illuminate this text, to help us have a greater understanding of its purpose. And I just ask that all of us here would just uh, deliver our minds and our hearts over to you, ready to receive uh, just instruction and encouragement. Lord, we love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, the title of the sermon today is uh, The Good, the Bad, and the Indifferent. In this passage, we see three responses to Jesus. Three common responses to Jesus during his incarnation. Uh, Some show hostility and self-interest. Namely, Herod. Others, like the chief priests and the scribes, uh, just show disinterest and indifference to Jesus. That's their response. Others, like the wise men, respond by worshiping him. And those are the three common responses that we see uh, in this passage. And what's interesting is that we continue to see these three responses uh, even in this day and age. Even in the church and in the secular world, we see people responding with uh, self-interest and hostility and indifference and worship. We're going to begin with Herod. Who in the world was Herod? Herod the Great. Well, Herod was an Edomite. He wasn't a Jew. And so he married a Jewish woman to gain some respect from the Jews that he ruled. Uh, In 25 BC, uh, he melted down various golden objects and sold them in order to purchase food for the less fortunate and the famished. Uh, In around, I believe, 19 BC, he began the reconstruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and he really did a bang-up job. I mean, it was really nice. Uh, He also uh, built structures of entertainment, uh, such as theaters and racetracks. Uh, He was also known for uh, restoring and embellishing cities uh, throughout the region and also funding uh, rebuilding projects in uh, Athens. And so uh, there was a lot of good things that Herod did, and he was kind of a well-liked man, kind of. Uh, But he was also a really, really, really cruel, brutal, and jealous man. I mean, severely cruel. He had... A high priest drowned, he had his wife murdered, he had his wife's mother murdered, he had two of his sons murdered, and five days before his own death, he had his last and final son executed. And perhaps the most barbaric of all of his um, cruelty and uh, maliciousness is uh, Matthew 2.16 where it says, Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Okay, listen. I want you to really understand this, that Herod was a bit of a psychopath. Sure, he was a a man who provided for people and built some nice buildings, made people feel comfortable, gave to the poor, but he was a blatant psychopath. He's crazy, absolutely crazy. You see, the thing that drove Herod nuts is his constant fear 
to lose his power and his position. I mean, constant fear. That's why he's jealous. When someone didn't like him, he had them murdered. He knew that no one was going to mourn for his death, so he had some other dude killed. He's a jealous guy. Why in the world is Herod so agitated about the birth of Jesus? See, in Matthew 1, uh, 2, 1 through 3, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. In verse 3, we see that Herod responds by being quite troubled. It says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, dot, dot, dot. Okay? He's freaking out. He's in panic mode. He's threatened. Why in the world is this? Why could this be? You see, Herod, although he was king, was not the rightful heir to the throne. So he he wasn't, really a legitimate king over the Jews. He actually nominated himself as king. And so he was king by virtue of the Roman government. And they accepted his self-nomination. Okay, you're going to be a great ruler. You can rule over the Jews. Boom, there you go. But he wasn't Jewish and he wasn't born king. Here's why he's so panicked. This is why he's so concerned. Jesus was born king. I don't want you guys to miss this in this passage. Jesus wasn't born and then gradually increased to where he was then given kingship. He came into the world as king. He is the eternal God, the eternal ruler and creator and sustainer of the universe. And he entered into humanity as king. But Herod wasn't. And this is why he's so unbelievably concerned. Because Jesus is a legitimate capital K king. And he isn't. He's kind of a phony. And so his power, his prestige, his authority is threatened by the Messiah king. He's afraid of losing his position. And so he's freaking out. Herod feared and hated the fact that this new birth of this child, this baby, could potentially steal his throne. And he wasn't digging it. His pride was offended. And in the statement from the Magi, born king of the Jews, Herod's like, I'm I'm pretty sure I'm the king of the Jews. Who are you speaking of? This concerns me a little bit. And what we gather from this is that his only interest in Jesus, his only interest in seeking Jesus, was selfishness. He only had a desire to find out who this Messiah King was because the Messiah King threatened his power and his position. And so he wanted him dead. That's the only reason why he had any interest in him whatsoever. He says this in Matthew 2.8. He says, Go and search carefully for the young child. 
And when you found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. That's a lie. He didn't want to worship him. He wanted to murder him. You see what the angel reveals in Matthew 2.13 to Joseph in a dream. Says, arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring uh, you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Herod's intent was murder. He wanted him dead. Later in Jesus' life, the chief priests and scribes only had an interest in Jesus because he threatened their political power and religious authority. Their traditions and laws were being squandered and trumped by Jesus. And so the only reason why they had any interest in communicating with him, following him, was to murder him. They wanted him dead. That was the only reason. It was self-interest. It was selfishness. We want to be proverbial kings over our own life. We want to be kings. We want to have authority. We love our kingdom and our power over ourselves. We want to be the boss. We want to be in charge. We want to have the power. We want to make our own decisions. We want to do what we want to do. And anybody who is a threat to that is going to be a recipient of our blatant hostility and persecution. We're going to despise them. We're going to reject them. We're going to try to harm them with words and maybe physical abuse. We don't like anyone who threatens our kingship and our proverbial kingdom because we want to remain kings of our own life. I see this when I evangelize to uh, non-Christians when you tell them that there is a God who is intrinsically bigger and better than them, it plucks their prideful cords. And they don't want to surrender their life to a God who is better than them. They don't want to be told that they have no merit in their salvation, that they're not good people, that there's bad people in Jesus. They don't like that. And so they naturally become hostile. Why do you think people want to hurt you or curse at you and spit at you when you share Jesus with them? They don't like the fact that there's a God that they have to submit to. They don't like the fact that there is a God who is much greater and much holier and much more powerful than them. And they don't want to give their life and their sin and their comfort and security to that God. Because they're afraid of losing their freedom. But in reality, they're in bondage. There is a second type of person, not not primarily a non-Christian, but I see this among Christians is that their only interest in Jesus is self-interest, is selfishness. Well, they'll only sign up to worship Jesus if he fulfills or gives them their uh, dreams and their desires and their, their plans and their needs and their wants. They'll say things like, 
if Jesus gives me this spouse, a spouse, a house, then I'm interested in Jesus. If Jesus gives me a car, a house, a dog, a phone, material things that please me, then I'm interested. Then I'll sign up. If Jesus, is, Jesus promises my health and my security and longevity on this earth with children and a legacy, then I'm interested. So they're only interested in Jesus because they want to receive something from him. They don't want to give anything to him, so they're not coming with their sin and their baggage and their immorality, saying, Jesus, be the Lord over my life. Rule as king over my life. Really, they're only interested because they think Jesus is a genie who will give them what they desire. And unfortunately, this is the kind of Christianity that has plagued the churches in America. Believe in Jesus, and he will give you the lusts of your heart. It's trash. It's a false gospel. It's the perversion and distortion of the truth. Jesus exists to meet all of your needs. No, you exist to glorify him. It's very common amongst Christians. I mean, even non-Christians. Well, does he promise me a suffering-free life? Does he promise me a perfect life? Will all my dreams and my ambitions be fulfilled if I follow him? And some people get talked into this thing and believe this. I was just at a camp recently where this is the kind of gospel message that was presented to teenagers. Come to Jesus and your life will be perfect. Oh, sure, shoot, I'll, I'll, I'll sign up. Fine. That's Herod's response. It's selfishness. Matthew 2, 4. And when they had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where Christ was to be born. So Herod, in his panic mode, worried about his position, power, and fame, and popularity being ripped from him, goes desperately and frantically seeking for help. And so where would you run to? Who has knowledge of the Messiah King? Who? The religious leaders. The Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sanhedrin, the, rather the Sadducees, the high priest, the captain of the temple. These are the people that we need to go to. So Herod goes to them, and that's what we see in Matthew 2, 4. Who are the chief priests? The chief priests had a considerable amount of political power. Uh, they were composed of a high priest, a captain of the temple, and Sadducees. And around the time of Jesus, they had actually become quite the corrupt group of political aristocrats and liberal theologians. They're corrupt. 
And on the other hand, we had the scribes, who were uh, primarily composed of Pharisees. And the Pharisees were theological conservatives. They believed in a uh, literal view of Scripture. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in angels. Opposed to the Sadducees, who disbelieved in the resurrection and in angels and any spiritual life whatsoever. They were liberals. So Pharisees were uh, conservatives. And they were actually really strict in their observance of the moral and ceremonial laws. So these are the kind of the two parties here that Herod has run to. And I want you to also understand this picture that the scribes were essentially uh, the modern day equivalent of uh, theologians and um, Bible scholars. They're essentially modern day Bible scholars and theologians. And so they made their living off of uh, studying and teaching the Bible. I mean, they knew the Bible really well. That's what they got paid to do. And so they had the answers. And Herod knew that they had answers, so he goes to them. And the chief priests and the scribes knew that the Messiah King would be a real man who would be born among men and would rule men. They knew. There was no confusion in this matter whatsoever. They knew the location where the Messiah King was prophesied to be born. They had all the scriptures. They knew it. They had studied it. And so he comes to them and he says, hey, where is this child going to be born? Where does it say in the scriptures? They just casually pop open Micah 2. Micah 2. Easy. Matthew, 5, or Matthew 2, 5 through 6 says, So they said to him, And Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And this prophecy was given 500 years before the Jesus, birth of Jesus. You see, prophecy fulfillment, as I discussed last time I preached, shows that God alone knows the future and that his word is perfect and true. That whatever he decrees will come to pass. You see, God, in prophecy, reveals little bits of the future in advance. And then he fulfills them. And, and, and it really just shows us that whenever he makes a promise, he fulfills it. That God never lies. God's word is perfect and it is true. And when he makes a promise, he's faithful to fulfill it. But you know what? This truth here, this potential fulfillment of this passage, didn't even interest the chiefs, priests, and the scribes. They had no interest whatsoever. No care to look into the matter any further. They were simply disinterested. Indifferent. Yeah, it's Micah 5.2. Good luck. Hello, this is the Messiah you've been waiting for. That your forefathers were strongly anticipating. And there's rumors, legitimate rumors, that he's born, that he's here. And these wise men from God knows where are here looking for him. Shouldn't that create some sort of interest? Shouldn't that spark some sort of desire within you to maybe curiously check it out? But no, there's no evidence in the text whatsoever that, he, that they, the, the, the chief priests and the scribes made any attempt to look into this matter. They simply gave the text and went on living. They did not care. 
it is supremely unfortunate that that is a lot of us sitting right here in this room. Maybe some of you have studied theology. You know some theological truth. You know that Jesus is both fully God and fully man, that he came to rescue sinners, that Jesus is eternal. He's of the same substance of the Father. Maybe you know those things. Maybe you've taken a Bible class or two. We're raised in Sunday school, went to junior high and high school, maybe college ministry. Maybe some of you have memorized some Bible verses at camp and you can recite them on call. John 3.16, John 1.1, Genesis 1.1. You know them. All the first verse in every chapter, all the epistles. Paul, an apostle. That's easy. <laughs> but you literally don't care. You just have seriously no interest whatsoever to pursue Jesus. You don't have any interest to read the Bible devoutly, to pray, to witness, to lift your hands during worship, to sing, to love, to serve. Absolutely no interest to repent of sins. Yeah, I know Jesus died on the cross. I know I'm a sinner, but I don't care. And I'm preoccupied with my job, my relationships, my status, my success, my knowledge, my hobbies, my family, my children, my material possessions. Those things have taken preeminence in my life, and I don't care. Even though we show up and sit in the pews, we literally don't care. We're not doing anything for Jesus. We're not in communication with him. We've just pushed him to the side. And we're not seeking, we're not pursuing. Just essentially dead. And that's a lot of us. Heck, that was me for like four, five years. Raised in the church, godly parents. Yeah, cool. I had morals. I didn't care to do anything. I just simply didn't care. That's a lot of us. And this is the kind of stark reality that I want to convey here is that disinterest is rejection. I'm just currently sitting on the fence waiting to make a decision. I'm just going to live my life the way that I want to live my life currently. That is rejection. Disinterest is the same as self-interest and hostility. They're all rejection. They're not worship. If you're disinterested in Jesus, then you've rejected him. And the gospel message Unfortunately, that's a lot of young high schoolers who I deal with, who I preach to. They just don't have a desire to pursue Jesus. And, 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 and they have so much pride and self-entitlement. I was raised in a church. I have godly parents. My parents read the Bible. It's in my house. I have Bible books. I mean, they even confess to me. 
I mean, I confess, I was one of them. Again, so I want you guys to understand the first two camps of response. We have self-interest and hostility. And then we have disinterest. And ultimately, all three of them are just rejection. And so Herod, the chief priests, and the scribes are all rejecting their Messiah who entered into the world to save them from their sin. They just flat out rejected him. You know what's super interesting and ironic is the fact that the chief priests and the scribes show no interest in this passage, but a few years later, they're Jesus's like most ridiculously like crazy oppressors and persecutors. Now the child is no threat whatsoever. But then he starts teaching and performing miracles and causing revivals. Then, then they have interest. Now he's threatening me. Now he's a threat to our religious uh, system. Let's murder him. And so their disinterest will eventually turn to self-interest. You kind of get that? Wise men. Who in the world were the wise men? I simply don't know. No idea. I mean, there is a lot of speculation surrounding the identity of the wise men. Here's a few things that they're not. I love doing this. I, I weed out the definite false lies, and then I tell some of the, you know, contending truths. Uh, first thing is this. We have no idea their names. We don't know how many of them there were. We don't know what country or countries they came from. We don't know those things. And some of you are like, well, actually, there's three, okay? It's in the nativity scene every year. I'm just going to rant for a second. Okay, your nativity scene is all wrong. It's wrong. It's just not right. The wise men don't even belong in the manger. They're simply not supposed to be there. They're still on their way. I mean, unless Mary and Joseph and Jesus just late sat there next to the sheep and the goats and chilled out there for some time. I highly doubt it because it stunk and it was stinky and filthy and just blah. So the nativity scene is wrong in the first place. Okay, I, <laughs> Take the magi during Christmas and move them to another room, okay? Because they're on their way. They're on their way. They're journeying, okay? They, they weren't there when he was just born, all right? Okay, so the nativity scene is wrong. That's number one. <laughs> number two is that we, we, we don't know how many there were. We just don't. And some are like, well, they brought three gifts. Well, we don't how, know how much of those three gifts they brought. I mean, for all we know, it could have been tons of gold and frankincense and myrrh, just tons of it. Mary and Joseph are like, what are we going to do with this? I have no idea. We don't even have a house to store it. I don't know. Just give it to people. Okay, fine. Fund the journey to Egypt. Okay, cool. Egypt's expensive. It's Las Vegas. Cool. Let's go. So we don't know how much of the gifts and treasures that they brought. We don't know. So let's say there's three. Fine. Okay, cool. Three. We don't know their names. We just know that they're wise men. We'll connect the dots of why they're wise at the end. Historically, magi were skilled in astronomy and astrology. They were also involved in occult practices, including sorcery, and were well known for interpreting dreams. Uh, In the book of Daniel, we learn that these magi are among the highest-ranking officials in Babylon. Here's what I want you guys to understand here, is that these guys are celebrities. Okay, they're not just some hobos walking up to the scene here. Okay, they, they, they have legitimate 
popularity, they're extremely educated, super smart. In fact, rulers and kings went to them for advice. Nebuchadnezzar used them. And that's why he was so inclined to use Daniel, because Daniel was so good at interpreting dreams. And these men seem to have a strong influence in Judaism. It's just weird. They're pagans. They're involved in the occult. Yet they seem to be monotheistic. They worship one God. And so I believe that they're God-fearing Gentiles who've been influenced by perhaps a prophetic writing such as Daniel that was left over from the time when Daniel wrote the book and that these people are from Persia. That's what I believe. And that's kind of like the study that I did and historically I, I see that it's, 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 I'm pretty certain that they were from Persia and that seems to be the general consensus here. And that they were influenced by prophetic writings of Daniel. And that's kind of how they had the idea that there was a Messiah king. But we do know is this, definitely we do know this. They were men from the east and they were extremely powerful, extremely wealthy, and extremely educated. Okay? I want you to remember that. Matthew 2, 1-2 through says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east, so they were from the east, okay, came to Jerusalem, asking where the heck the Messiah king was. How in the world did they know that Jesus had been born? The chief priests didn't know. The scribes didn't know. No one seemed to know. How did they know? It says, for we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. What in the world is a star? Is it an angel? Is it a truck? Is it a sock? No, just kidding. Is it bacon? I don't know. No idea. I'm hungry. Honestly, there's so much speculation surrounding the identity of the star. It's like as, as mysterious as the wise men. How in the world did they know? We simply don't know. We don't know all the details. All we know is that God divinely revealed it to them and led them there by a mysterious star. That's really all we know. Anything more than that is simply speculation. Let's read their response. In Matthew 2, 9 through 10, says, When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These wise men, I mean, wherever from the east they came from, we don't know, maybe Persia, that's kind of a long distance, is it not? We know for certain that wherever they're from, they went to great lengths to get there. They sacrificed time. They sacrificed convenience. They sacrificed money and energy to get there. Some of you just stroll on over to Los Angeles like, no big deal. It's like, oh, well, there's some traffic, but I'm in a car and I just go down there. That's really no big deal. Can you imagine that journey on a camel? Have you considered how difficult it was to travel back then? I mean, really, consider what great lengths you would have to go to to get to a place. I really don't want to go to the uh, grocery store, Mom. I really don't. 
I really don't feel like walking in the mud and the dirt and the poop and the pee and all, no, whatever. I just don't feel like it. These are powerful men, well-educated, extremely wealthy, making a very long journey, sacrificing convenience to worship what? A child. A child. These are celebrities. These are famous men doing all that they can to make sure that they see this king and worship him and give their gifts to him. Their response was worship. They showed humility by actually asking religious leaders questions. Prideful people don't do that. Prideful people don't ask questions. They think they know everything. They don't listen. Not these wise men. They they humbled themselves to actually listen to Jews. They were Gentiles. And they listened to the Jews. They trusted them. This demonstrates humility. When they found the poor child and his poor parents, poor, like literally poor, they weren't rich by any means, they worshipped him. Do you understand that this is true, humble, reverent worship? They sacrificed their time, they sacrificed their money and convenience, their lives, their health to get here and worship this Savior as King. They understood the gravity and the seriousness and the intensity and the glory that had just occurred. This is the Messiah King that the Jewish Hebrew scriptures prophesy of who will come as a redeemer to save and they fell to the ground. It's hard for us to even get on our knees and we have carpet. You know, they, uh, they attributed ultimate worth to him. They attributed glory to him and value. That's genuine worship. They gave gold frankincense and myrrh all valuable treasures it costed them something they gave their treasures to jesus some say that gold represents jesus's royalty and kingship which i would agree others say that frankincense represents his deity and his priestly office Others say that myrrh represents his humanity and sacrifice. I don't have time to go in those three uh, elements, but uh, just based on what they are uh, kind of gives light to what they actually represent. But it doesn't matter what they actually mean here, and I don't want to allegorize it. But what we do know is that they were expensive, valuable gifts given to Jesus. They didn't let their power, they didn't let their position, they didn't let their prestige, their fame, get in the way of their worship. They didn't. They came. They came to worship the child regardless 
regardless of what people thought about them, regardless their position, regardless their authority. They sacrificed and forsake, forsook everything to come to worship him. The big idea is this. Every single person needs Jesus. And I mean, that's a simple big idea. I mean, shoot, that is elementary for some of us. But I want you to consider this truth. What I see in this passage, what I've discovered after studying it, is that it doesn't matter how religious or irreligious you are. It doesn't matter how educated or uneducated you are. It doesn't matter how moral or immoral you are. It doesn't matter how spiritual. It doesn't matter how many verses you know. It doesn't matter what church you go to. It doesn't matter how you grew up. It doesn't matter what your culture, your background, your race. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're male or a female, old or young. Everybody needs Jesus. I don't care what your reputation is. I don't care what your status is. I don't care what your current habitual sins are and aren't. I don't care what your morality is or isn't. I don't care how many religious deeds you perform or how obedient you are or aren't. I don't care what college you went to or high school you went to or didn't go to. I don't care what diploma you received or didn't receive. You need Jesus right now. All of us do. And what we need to understand is that the cross isn't a past event in our lives. No, yeah, I was saved way back then. And I sit here now doing absolutely nothing, not being transformed by any means, not giving my life to Christ, not submitting willingly to the Holy Spirit and bearing the fruits of the Spirit, not serving in the community building community and relationship with sinners, professing the name of Christ. I literally do nothing. I'm struggling with sin. I've got my addictions. But I was saved. You see, what you must understand is the the cross should be before you always. And you should constantly be clinging to that cross desperately in need of grace at all times. You're never too good for grace. And grace isn't earned. It's freely given because God is good. You see, if you have been abused, if you've been a recipient of verbal or physical abuse, if you've been raped or molested, if you've been violated or in any way whatsoever, you need Jesus and he heals. He washes all of that filthiness away. All the filth that has been done to you, he washes it away. He takes your old clothes, casts them away, and puts a white gown on you and calls you clean. 
Maybe you're the abuser. Verbally, physically. That's me. Maybe you're just severely immoral. Pornography, drugs, alcohol. Just constantly bashing people with words. You're a grump. You don't serve anyone. You're completely selfish. You need Jesus as well. And Jesus takes your filthiness, casts it away, and puts on a white gown and says, clean. It doesn't matter who you are. You need Jesus. It doesn't matter if you've already been saved, if you've made a profession of faith. You still need Jesus desperately. You can't operate outside of his grace. You can't do anything apart from his grace. It's all bondage apart from his grace. He is the eternal, sovereign, gracious, and loving king who created all things and rules over all things and sustains all things. You see, I honestly don't know the spiritual temperature of this room. I don't know who's saved or who isn't saved. I don't know who thinks they're a Christian, but they're really not. I don't know who really is a genuine Christian. I don't know. I don't know. I can't judge that. Whether you're a saint or a sinner, God has demonstrated and granted common grace to you. He gives you the life that you live. He gives you the air that you breathe. And he gives you all things. He's good. Whether you believe in him or not. He's good to you. And for the Christians who have experienced saving grace. I hope you truly understand how much our Savior loves you. Loves us. See, Jesus cannot love me. I've done too much wrong in my life. Prove it. Prove that Jesus loves me. The cross proves that Jesus loves us. It was the ultimate historical demonstration of God's love for humanity. And no one can doubt that God loves us. He's demonstrated it clearly. You see, what's so unbelievably mind-boggling, and I'll close with this, is that the eternal God who created all things enters into humanity as a what? A king. He's born a literal king. A king. An eternal king who has always been. There's never been a time where he hasn't been. He's always existed. And yet he enters into humanity as a human being on a mission to serve us by being our representative and obeying in our place and dying the death that we all deserve and rising again, defeating Satan's sin and death, ensuring our future resurrection. And he will return to restore all things. We will be given a brand new resurrected body just like his resurrected body that will be absent and no longer subject to illness, pain, suffering, death, torment, all the above. He will make all things new. 
There is absolutely no one or nothing that deserves the kind of worship that Jesus does. He is the good king. He is the good shepherd. He never fails us. He never leaves us. He never lies. And he's demonstrated that to be true. And I pray that no matter what your current response to Jesus is, that you would be compelled through the Spirit working in you to worship Jesus right now. To give your life to him, to give your gifts to him. Genuine worship. Genuine worship isn't coming into the church and sitting in a chair or standing or lifting your hand. Genuine worship is giving your entire life to Jesus consistently. Your job, your family, your children, your finances, your hobbies, your gifts. Give it all to Jesus because he gave it all to you. And he will be good to us. He will be good to us. Amen? And so I pray that in this last song that we would just spend some time in prayer and just praise him for who he is and who we're not. Amen? Let's close in a song and I'll pray. Micah, you want to come up? Father God, your text is so unbelievably ridiculous. Your word is powerful and it pierces the heart and just saws us asunder. It literally just cuts us open and exposes just the, the, the hurt and the pain and the emptiness and the brokenness. And you're so gentle at being a good surgeon who just fixes us. You fix hearts. You're like a surgeon who comes in and performs heart surgery. God, without you, we're dying. God, I pray that, uh, Lord, this week and the rest of our lives, that all of us here would just be super compelled, super motivated by your love and by your grace to give everything to you, to serve you sacrificially, just like the wise men. God, they they were pagans. They weren't Jews. They were the wrong people. Yet they did everything they could to find you, to pursue you, to seek you. And God, I pray that would be the mindset of all of us. That we would go to great lengths, great lengths to worship and serve you. Forsaking our convenience. Forsaking our comfort. For your glory and and your kingdom. Lord, we love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.